0: Remember offices, back in the days when we used to work in them? Well, the average air temperature is too cold for women. The heating was all worked out in the 1960s and is based on the resting heart rate of the average man. This is one of the many ways in which the world is designed by men for men. We all know that, on average, women feel the cold much more than men. And I know that I'm not the only husband who's constantly fighting with his wife over the heating in the house. I open windows, she closes them, she puts the heating on, I turn it off again. It's a constant battle. Now we can of course argue endlessly about gender, but we do know that there are biological differences between men and women, and that biological sex matters. Women give birth, and this has traditionally given them a role in society that is different to men. Many people consider women to be more caring, and men to be more competitive. Women show their feelings, men hide theirs. For over a century now, feminists have pushed to give women more opportunities, more options for how they live their lives. Life is surely much better for a woman today than it was in the 1920s. But is it? And how would we know? And what about men? Think about this question. If you're being born today and you wanted to maximize your chances of a good life or to minimize your chances of a bad one, would you choose to be born a girl or a boy? And besides room temperature, it's a battle of the sexes becoming irrelevant. I'm Paul Dolan. I'm a professor of behavioral science at the London School of Economics. And this is the Duck Rabbit podcast. I'm fascinated by human behavior and happiness, and I've been researching it for years. I'm well aware of the comfort that can be found in conforming to core beliefs and from dismissing anyone who dares to disagree with them. In the first five part series of this podcast, I asked whether our polarised culture might actually be making us unhappy and what we might do to be more accepting of difference. In this second three part series, I'm going to look at our general desire for simple, one animal solutions to any issue, from pineapple on pizza to climate change. Before that, I'm going to discuss one certainty of life death and ask why we have such polarised views about whether the deaths of older people should count for less than the deaths of younger people. So, a lot to look forward to then. But before all of that, I'm going to take on the tricky subject of gender differences. As with the last series, I brought a friend along, but a different one this time, Dr. Kate Laffan. Kate, hello. Hi, Paul. How are you?
1: Yeah, good. Good to be here.
0: It's really lovely to be talking to you about this. We've um, known each other for a long while it feels now probably relatively more of your life than mine when was probably it it feels we've... longer for me too <laughs> <laughs> yeah well right okay when was it you came to the LSE as a master's student didn't you in what 2013 somewhere way back then you did one of my courses happiness behavior course or something was it
1: yeah happiness behavior public policy and then and then my path was set so i rocked up after one of our classes and offered myself up as a as a willing lab rat to conduct
0: research yeah, no, I do. I do actually recall you coming saying, "Give me some work. Let me do something." And you—you you had no intention, did you, of ever pursuing an academic career? No,
1: that I have you to thank for, or to blame for. <laughs> my mum was an academic, and so being a somewhat rebellious teenager, and my teenage years lasting well beyond my actual teenage years, I didn't sit comfortably with me the idea of following my mum into academia sincerely I was very inspired by that course that we did all those years ago and just that it was always interesting and always engaging and especially the way that you marry happiness you not just thinking about behavior change for the sake of it but thinking about trying to make people and society better off through an understanding of how we think act and behave it's to this day I still find so interesting and yeah have you to thank for my career that followed
0: our, both our natural tendencies to take the piss. So I, I'm going to. It's killing me. <laughs> resist every temptation to do that, and just sincerely say that's uh, very humbling. Um, <laughs> <laughs> this is so deeply uncomfortable for us both. <laughs> we're going to talk today about gender issues, gender differences, gender discrimination. I'll start with a question. You've got a one-year-old kid. Before you found out the sex of your daughter, did you have a preference for what you were going to find out? I know you're not meant to
1: say this, but I absolutely did. So I was, first of all, the fact that I found out is kind of unusual in Ireland. But I was over the moon when I found out she was a girl. <laughs> and you're not really meant to broadcast that too widely, but I was.
0: Do you think she's going to have a better life being a girl than she would have done if she was a boy?
1: You know, if you were behind a veil of ignorance, so if you, if you were going to have a baby anywhere in the world... And you were to ask, okay, should it be a boy or a girl if if as a parent you just care about that baby having the best life possible? I think you'd have lots of reason to be concerned about having a girl. Got like risks of sexual violence. You've got things like, you know, not represented in positions of power and in politics. Two thirds of the illiterate adults in the world are women. So if it was going to be anywhere in the world and you had no control over that, if you just cared about the the kids life and life chances, you'd probably be safer off having a boy. But obviously, I'm not behind a veil of ignorance. I know I am my own self and live in the society that I do in Ireland. There's lots of challenges that my daughter will face because of her gender. But there's also lots of challenges that she would face if she was a boy. And how that balances out, not super clear to me.
0: I mean, there's very little difference between genders in terms of happiness reports. It's you know, There, there was a suggestion that women were slightly happier than men, I think, at least on life satisfaction reports. But that gap has narrowed. It's very small. But if you multiply that by life expectancy, then it's better to be a girl, right? Because women live longer than men.
1: I think we both agree that maybe life satisfaction isn't the only way you could look at that and maybe not even the best way you could look Agreed. at it if you're looking at subjective well-being yeah, right. data. Again, not massive, but there are some differences when you look at positive and negative affect. So it seems like women are having both better and worse experiences on average. They report higher levels of positive affect, but also report more negative experiences. And there's other data that you can look to that I think is important, like those kinds of data suggest that, you know, women are having quite negative experiences or are more likely to have quite negative experiences.
0: You're right. I mean, it is interesting that there is some data, as you say, suggesting that women have both more positive and negative emotional experiences. It depends which way you cut that data. I mean, men are much more likely to take their own lives because they do it in much more violent means, they're much more successful at doing it. Isn't it just a really difficult one to call? So I want to come back to your own child. What is it that made you very happy that, that she was a girl? Of course, you would have been happy if she was a boy as well, but um, yeah. that especially happy. And I would
1: have told that, a story about that too. And though.
0: you would have told a story about that. Well, that's a really important point as well, is that we're very good at being able to construct these post thought rationalisations for things. But the, is it your life goes better by having a daughter?
1: No, I guess I see cause for optimism. You know, things are, there's definitely challenges that she will face as as a girl and that are specific to her gender. But at the same time, there's progress
0: being made. So progress is being made then. But might it be at the expense of men's welfare? Well, we spoke to a collection of people, including some of my students, who had this to say.
2: If I was born today, I would definitely choose to be a boy. I think it's like, hands down, it's not even a question Because the world is basically built for men, by men. Like, that's the default.
3: Uh, To maximise chances, definitely a boy. More chances to progress in my career as a male. More opportunities to travel, i.e. I can go to riskier parts of the world. Hell, more chances of finding a place to take a leak, given the strategic positioning of the male anatomy.
2: In life, I think women definitely have it harder in the workplace. I think they get traditionally very little thanks for the unpaid work that they do as housewives and mothers. I think men generally don't have it as hard as women at all.
3: I don't think people really appreciate how hard it is for men. Often people struggle with their mental health and men certainly are often aren't able to uh, explain what's going on in their heads. They're not able to be honest, be open. They have to put up this kind of facade sometimes about being tough, about being in control. But really, we're not able to admit our fragility. And that's very dangerous
0: and very difficult for men. So, there's a real mixture of views there. But one of the themes picked up on was male mental health. So, just how difficult is it for men in 2021? Well, I've been speaking to a woman who was once a pioneer of the feminist movement, but has now become one of the best-known men's rights activists. Erin Pizzi should be a feminist hero. She founded the first refuge for victims of domestic abuse in 1972 in her own home. But then things changed. She told me why life is so much tougher for men these days.
2: In the last 50 years, we've had such a lot of hostility towards men and boys that now, for anyone having sons... I'd be very concerned. And you have to remember, I've got five great-grandchildren, of which two are boys, and I'm seeing in them all the damage I saw you know, earlier on with my grandchildren in terms of life expectancy. And in the school situation, uh, boys are considered a terrible nuisance. So what's gone wrong? The <laughs> gender feminist movement. <laughs> I was in there at the beginning first thing they asked you to do when you paid your three pounds ten, I might add, which is my whole week's housekeeping in those days to join the women's liberation movement as it was in those days, was to go to the local meeting. So I left my husband babysitting and I never had to ask him to babysit before because there was nowhere for women to go on their own, really We went out as couples and uh, and I, I got to this woman's house and I was really excited at the idea because you see one of the promises of the women's movement, was that women would stop competing with each other, but get together and organise. And I took the idea of organising that women would get together and work in their communities. There was plenty of little things that needed adjusting if you were looking at equality between men and women. So after that, I, with some of the girls from my own group, began to badger Hounslow Council. And in order to get rid of us, because we made such a nuisance of ourselves, they gave us this tiny little run-down house, it was completely derelict, the end of a row of derelict houses in Belmont Terrace in Chiswick. And we completely renovated that little house. We opened up as Chiswick Women's Aid to be of service to all women and children. Men were welcomed by invitation and every woman who
0: wanted one got a key. This sounds to me like a great advert for feminism. I mean, that's what you, know, you, were, that's what you were doing, right?
2: Well, no, because the thing is that you have to keep remembering that there was no such thing as feminism. That isn't what it was. Yes,
0: right. I was doing
2: what I thought feminism was about.
0: So what is it about and what has it become? Because if it was like you know, the idea that you would be engaged in activities that would promote equality across the genders, is, 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 is who could argue with that, right?
2: I call them gender feminists because there's plenty of women who would see themselves as equity feminists, and I'm not arguing yeah. about that. I'm arguing about the anti-male, anti-family, anti-boys. Right. I I think the majority of women are obviously turned off because they know that that their sons and their husbands and their brothers aren't included.
0: What is it that we're doing especially badly to boys?
2: It starts from the very beginning, uh, really, uh, from the fact that boys are more likely to be murdered by their mothers. Uh, And and also society itself, men are much more likely to experience danger in the jobs that they do. And in schools, in order to test my theory, I took an exam to assist reading in primary school. So I did it for a year. I chose a primary school near the airport. So it had a huge amount of different children. And I was teaching three boys and they were 10 just about to move on.
0: Yeah.
2: All I can say after a year of working there to see my three boys through I just called it child abuse. There was one man in the whole of that huge primary school. The boys of 11 and 12, the women couldn't control them. They'd completely lost control of these boys. So what would happen, they'd be screaming and yelling.
0: So that's a really strong argument for getting men into teaching, into primary schools in particular, secondary schools, right?
2: Ah, but why would men go into teaching? If a man's in a school, they have to keep the doors open. To make sure that they weren't accused of sexually abusing students and the other thing that happens but for a long time now the education concepts have been feminized so you have these tables with these very small chairs where these very large 10 year old boys sit with their knees up to their nose in a circle of girls and are expected to concentrate boys don't at that age concentrate the way girls do Girls want to please the teachers, most boys couldn't care less. And it doesn't work.
0: Yeah, and also you need to allow people to move around as well. That's the other thing, is that we just insist that people sit still in school.
2: There's no playing fields. Most schools have sold off their playing fields.
0: So, what should we be doing about all of this?
2: We know that boys are the most behind in our education system. We need to look at the evidence and then reorganize our primary schools to allow for the differences between boys and girls.
0: That requires us to accept a biological difference that manifests itself directly without being socially constructed in any, in any fashion.
2: The difference in the brains between boys and girls, you see it. We know that from our MRI scans, they've done them. Just in a gendered world, they don't want to hear it.
0: A lot of feminists will argue that there aren't any significant differences.
2: Just in the way boys and girls process information a huge difference
0: one of the challenges is allowing people to be themselves and to be an authentic version of themselves and i suppose the question is to what degree these movements of whatever kind enable that or stifle that i guess whether there is a prescription about how lives ought to be led which get in the way of people being their authentic selves or whether these movements liberate people to express themselves freely and be who they truly are
2: well the feminist movement certainly didn't
0: yeah, I mean, that's where the whole point of well-functioning societies is that we get on together and that we make progress together and not, not the idea that we would pit different groups against one another that almost essentially frame this as a zero-sum game.
2: I do think that the whole gender concepts are dying out. I think uh, the younger women coming up have realised that it's created a deep hostility. So men are afraid, particularly now, what can happen is if a woman wants a divorce... There are plenty of female feminist lawyers, solicitors. The first advice they give is claim domestic violence. These days, you don't even have to be hit because it can be coercive control. So that can be anything from shouting to whatever. You don't have to worry about it because you don't have to prove anything. You just say, I'm frightened of him. I live in a hostile atmosphere. What happens then is immediately she's safe. He's kicked out. Because at the moment, by default, women get the children and the man has to plead. And that's why I think the suicide rates are so high for men.
0: There's no, there's clearly no disputing some of that. I do feel, though, with the sexual violence, I mean, the much bigger problem is surely the underreporting of sexual assaults and rapes and the, the woefully inadequate prosecution of that crime in particular. Isn't well, the that, difficult
2: thing is, I you know...
0: know that's a much, well, yes, that's because a they've much made bigger it's, problem than made the false into a very
2: complicated problem, right? subject because the law of consent there's too much yeah, false allegations that I mean, aren't I looked into, I... so everybody's frightened and also yes, of course, because apart from anything else in rape cases it's a very tough thing to ask a woman to go through there's, there's lots of things that need to be looked at around there
0: yeah i don't know I just feel that's a fundamental respect issue and The lack of respect drives some of that behaviour, however you might see that. And that's bound to be gendered in some way. So what should we do? Or maybe even the younger generation now, what should they be doing differently now?
2: Get rid of the whole gendered argument in schools and everywhere else. Little boys are little boys. Let's make arrangements for little boys to be boys.
0: Comes back to schools again for you, doesn't it?
2: You know, the roots of domestic violence don't lie in gendered male oppression. The roots of domestic violence have, have always been generational. And I think that if we begin at the beginning in in schools, very early on, teaching, even children like in Head Start programs, which is where they come in very young. And there, the children are helped to understand how to make relationships. All of us, none of us have perfect parents. There's no such thing. So we all need strategies to survive our, our childhood.
0: That was another fascinating conversation. Erin and I certainly don't agree on everything, and I'm particularly concerned about creating narratives around false allegations of sexual assault, when we know the system and society still treats victims of sexual assault so badly, and when conviction rates for rape are so appallingly low. These are issues that must be urgently addressed. But there's also a lot of common ground regarding the rights of fathers, and that schools do seem to be quite hostile towards boys. As with every issue, class will play an important role here. And there's no doubt that working class boys can get a particularly tough time in school. I come from a, as you know, the sort of background I come from, and it was a very, almost like a matriarchal type environment, really. I mean, all of the power, all of the decision making was largely made by the mums, not by the fathers. They might, might not have all gone to work, but the income was shared household incomes. And the mums had quite a lot of discretion and control over what was spent how the kids were brought up
1: that's a really good point point. one of the things that struck me when I was, I was doing a bit of reading around this is half of all lone parents in the UK are in poverty almost half are in poverty and, and the vast majority of those are women and
0: yeah. it's
1: almost like you have all that responsibility and you have all that power but if that economic security falls apart or if relationships fall apart, you're in a very vulnerable position. It's not that that responsibility and power isn't, isn't valuable, it's just that when it's devoid of any economic security and not backed up by a welfare system that supports women who are in caring roles exclusively, yeah. you can be really vulnerable.
0: I think mothers really suffer when fathers aren't interested in being part of the child's life when they separate, but fathers also suffer a lot when they do want to be involved in the child's life when they separate. Yeah.
1: current gender discourse is about how it isn't really a zero-sum game, that these really strict gender norms can hurt both women and men. You know, men shouldn't be somehow having a narrative that men shouldn't be taking the parental leave, even if it's on offer, or shouldn't be taking sick days when they need to care for their kids. And equally, roll forward if there's some sort of breakdown of the relationship, that the default should be that the children are always
0: with the women and that access is sort of restricted for men. I guess it's troubling to me that a lot of these discussions, particularly around you know gender around race around other grouping is that they they're, they're sort of almost set up as zero sum games the conversation becomes one about if this group does better then this group must do worse and and of course there's not there's a dynamic interaction as well between them and i just wonder with the gender issues whether we've maybe lost sight of that a little bit in the the household interdependencies the societal interdependencies that you know we've lived in resource scarce environments for most of our existence. Men and women have sort of muddled through that reasonably well.
1: Well, in many cases, men better than women, (laughs) arguably. I mean, the fact that we've muddled through or, you know, obviously the society has continued doesn't mean that you should take a snapshot one time and say, okay, because we've made it this far, that means we can't get better.
0: That thought is certainly shared by Caroline Credo-Perez. She was another student of mine. And in fact, she was a classmate at Kate's. She has written the book on how the world is built by men for men. It's called Invisible Women, and I cannot recommend it highly enough. I started by asking her if she had the choice whether she'd be born as a man or as a woman.
4: That is such an interesting question, and I genuinely don't know. You know, obviously, having grown up as a girl, I know all the social stereotypes that are enforced on girls and the negative impact that has on our lives. And also, of course, you know, the stuff I've written about, about how we don't collect data on women. But on the other hand, I also have nephews and I see the way social stereotypes are enforced on them. And it kind of breaks my heart because they're so sweet and loving and, you know, hold hands with each other and stuff. And, and, I know what's coming, you know, when they get older as boys, the kind of social expectations that will be put on them and how this sweetness will likely be bullied out of them. You know, I know from speaking to my male friends, speaking to my brothers and just, you know, being a human who can see what happens in the world, that that is not a behavior that's encouraged in boys and in men. And that is really sad. And I think that my life would be impoverished if I were not allowed to express affection and express my emotions and be aware of my emotions in the way that is more encouraged in women to a certain extent. I mean, let's not get carried away. Obviously women get called hysterical, which is a whole other thing.
0: To go back to your comments about your nephews, do you think mm. your nephews are in a better position now than if they'd been born at 20 years ago or if they're going to be born in 20 years time?
4: Not much. I don't feel actually that there has been nearly as much Change in terms of what men are allowed to be, as there has been in terms of what women are allowed to be. The role for women has expanded dramatically over the past century. and the role for men, yeah, it has a little bit, you know, men are allowed to like look after their kids more in a way than they were allowed to say twenty years ago. but there still is a fairly restrictive role, I think, that's imposed on boys and men. And I hope that that will change. Um, But I haven't seen a huge amount of evidence of it, I don't think. Men are more likely to kill themselves. Um, They're not necessarily more likely to try, but they use more violent methods and they are therefore more likely to kill themselves. And there is absolutely a huge number of very unhappy men. And the question is, why is that? And a feminist analysis would be, well, that is going to be connected to this idea of toxic masculinity, i.e. the idea that there is a type of masculinity that doesn't allow men to have access to the full spectrum of human emotions, and therefore they can't be a balanced, happy person because they are so tied to this very limited role of what success looks like.
0: Having got into my 50s and having been an alpha male, having always seen myself as such, I am actually very, very happy being one. But I am, I think, allowed to express the range of human emotion and I have the whole range of human experience and I have, you know, uh, a more feminine side, shall we say that as well. But I am an alpha male. I do like being strong. I like competition. I'm never really jealous of anyone else's success, but I like competing myself. It's about finding your own way through it and working out who you are. I
4: mean, I think that one of the ways of doing that is decoupling these, what I would argue, are human emotions from genders we've been talking about how much more limited the sphere of emotions and experiences are for men than for women. But there are also emotions and experiences that are disallowed to women, right. like the ones that you're talking about, because we right. see them as inherently masculine. But they're not. Women are competitive and just as status is obsessed and quite enjoy being strong, as strong as a woman yeah. can physically be. I do strength training and I just like being able to lift things I used not to be able to lift. You can enjoy all of these things. You can be all of those things and you can be them whether you're a man or a woman. Just because you've got one set of genitalia over another doesn't mean that that has to decide what your future is going to be.
0: No, I completely agree.
4: I mean, actually, someone who is really interesting is Cordelia Fine. She wrote this really fascinating book called Testosterone Rex that looks into this idea that testosterone rules men's behavior and therefore causes men to behave in certain ways. And risk is one of the things that she looks at. And one of the things that I found really, really interesting was her analysis of how gendered our perceptions of what we think of as risky behavior is. So skydiving, really risky, taking a bet on the stock market, risky. But As she points out, a woman going out on a date with a straight man, it's kind of risky. Like if you meet up with some guy off an app or getting pregnant, that's quite risky too. Taking the pill, as we're discovering since there's been so many headlines, since we're very worried about clots, but there's so much more risk of clots from just being on the pill. So there's like these behaviors that women engage in that are objectively more risky than skydiving, but we don't think of them as risky. And I just found that.
0: Yeah, it's Really, really fascinating. Are there any things that you do think men and women are fundamentally different in relation to?
4: Well, I think men and women are biologically different. I think that we are definitely different. And that's very, very clear when you look at differences in behaviour and attitudes between men and women. The question is, to what extent is that innate? And to what extent is that shaped by the cultural messages we get from the moment we're born? And... Obviously I fall more on the side of, it's a cultural construct. And that is because of all the research showing how heavily gendered the messages are that we push on children Mm. and the gendered expectations that parents have. Like even before the kids were born, there's a study showing that if pregnant women were told that the fetus was male versus whether the fetus was female, they believed it kicked more and moved around more. So, wow. there are these hugely gendered expectations that parents and the rest of us, society, schools, books, you know, are placing on kids from the moment they're conceived. And of course, we know that the brain is very plastic and that our brain is shaped by environment. And so, why wouldn't that also be the case for all the gendered messages that we're bombarded with from the beginning of our lives? That's not to say that we will never find any biologically driven differences, but there is no reason that I'm aware of to suggest that it's more nature than nurture.
0: In a sense, it doesn't actually make much difference at any one point in time, because what we really should be paying attention to are the consequences of that interaction between the biological differences and the social constructions, but shouldn't we as well... and Arguably, mostly be focused on the consequences, which is the flow of health and well being over an individual's lifetime, and looking to see where men and women do well and badly
4: absolutely rather than
0: or as well as understanding yeah
4: Yeah. i mean that that is that's the central message of my book is collect the data (laughs) so we can see what's going on and unfortunately we're just not doing that but of course you need to know what the outcomes are there's this line there's a throwaway line that you will not remember that you said but it really stuck with me in one of your lectures or seminars where you said the number of times governments and organisations will approach you to say, oh, we want to measure the impacts of this policy we've introduced, but they didn't bother to collect the data before it was introduced. That we don't measure where we are before we try and meddle with it to see, you know, how we can fix things. We're just not collecting that data. And when we do, we don't sex disaggregate it.
0: So what do we do next then? I guess that's the That's the big question. What will you be doing or what will the world be doing by the time you're you're my age that will make it better than where we are now?
4: We've discussed the need for sex disaggregated data. Um, So I really hope that that is something that we will be doing, that we will not be using men as the default humans and thinking that data collected on them is sufficient to represent everyone and that we can make decisions about what medical treatment Um, is given or how resources are allocated based on data from only half the global population. That would be a very important thing. I also really hope we're going to spend a lot more time and do a lot more work in figuring out how we can allow boys to not be forced into this very, very narrow version of masculinity. Both men and women, I think, have a lot to gain from men being allowed to have a richer, fuller experience of what humanity can be. And I really think if we were to do the collecting the sex disaggregated data and addressing the type of humanity men are allowed to access, everyone would be a lot happier and a lot healthier.
0: The very first thing that we all need to do if we're gonna change anything in ourselves or in wider society, is acceptance of the fact that we are these flawed human beings that carry around these you know stereotypes, prejudices social constructions, and to think that we're devoid of them or free of them is so arrogant what we need more of is that humility to recognize that we're all subject to all of these things that we're trying to change that's the thing that makes you special is your willingness to really accept that, to accept that you do carry much of this around with you yourself
4: I think i am lucky that i started off as an anti-feminist because it means that i understand that position but also i believe and know in fact that people can change their minds a i know that people who disagree with me are not evil people, because I disagreed yeah. with myself once upon a time. And also there are people I love who disagree with me and who I've been working very hard to change their minds for, <laughs> for the best <laughs> part of a decade. I also know that opinions aren't fixed, that they can be changed.
0: Lots to think about there then, and some of my own views have been challenged. But before reaching any conclusions, I want to have a chat with a man. Sam Friedman is a colleague of mine at the LSE. You may remember him from the episode on social class in the first series. Amongst other things, I wanted to talk to him about the importance of the intersection between class and gender. But I started with the question about whether it's better to be a boy or a girl.
3: Yeah, it's interesting. I'm thinking about this a lot at the moment because I've got two young girls at home and obviously experienced lots of pressures of masculinity as a young boy. But I think in terms of a smoothness of life experience, I think almost certainly I would be born a boy. I think that the, the profound kind of societal pressures and then inequalities in life outcomes that, that women face and young girls face is sort of deeply unjust. And you realise and you see, certainly as a
0: parent, almost immediately when your children are born. What if I were to cite back to you the fact that there's very little difference in people's happiness, whether they're male or female? I mean, there's hardly anything. I mean, some data sets show a slight difference and it depends on what measures you use. But by and large, there isn't very much in it.
3: I mean, I suppose this is a a really interesting question. I suppose when it comes down to what measures and variables that tap happiness or well-being kind of get at. There's so many sources of what might make up your happiness and your well-being. I suppose that as a critical sociologist, what yeah. I can see more... Is the way in which the sort of pressure, essentially, that you right. face as a, as a woman in terms of expectations, and that you know that's not. And
0: where do you think those? So where do you think those play up most then?
3: Well, I mean, I think, I mean, they do it at all life stages. This is going back to my, my own family, but you see, from the point of view of of young daughters, a a set of potential identities that they are allowed to have as being much more curtailed than the range of possibilities that I see among the sons of my friends. And that's, you know, from very kind of mundane seeming things like clothing, all the way through to kind of interpretations of behavior
0: uh, and what's acceptable and what's not. As a really interesting side that you might find important when you're deciding whether to move on to child number three or not is (laughs) I can remember this vividly being on a tube and looking at a family with I think it was five sons and I thought that's poor sods right you know that kids three four definitely five one of those was meant to be a girl and it's sort of unwritten or unspoken that all we want is a healthy baby when actually of course people go on to have four and five children because they've got all of the same sex before. I thought, well, that must show up somewhere. And I've waited a long time to look at the data to either support that or to refute it. And so we've been looking at essentially families that go into the lottery of having a third child when they've got two of the same sex before. And either you win and you get the opposite sex or you lose and you get the same sex. And actually it does show up quite significantly in terms of happiness. So and actually for quite a long while, that the parent's happiness is quite significantly reduced when they have the child of the same sex. And interestingly, most of that is driven by her, not him. So the mother's happiness is most affected. And interestingly, when she doesn't get a boy, so if your wife is anything like the average person, if there's anything like an average person, if you do have that third child, make sure you get a boy. (laughs)
3: <laughs> it's fascinating in the sense that you uh as you say the, the societal narrative is that is that it doesn't matter i think that you know the, the lived experience is such that you at the very least you are curious about the difference and there's perhaps a part of me as a sociologist that would like to experience both types of gender but i at the same time i'm uh there's absolutely no way we're
0: going to have another <laughs> <laughs> Uh Good, good. Uh, but no, I, I say that as if it matters to me. Let's start bringing in social class. I, I get the impression, although, of course, this is not true when you look more widely, but a lot of the discussion about gender inequalities pays attention to inequalities in top jobs. Do you think that's a fair reflection of where most of the discussion is? And, and if so, isn't that a little bit narrow?
3: I suppose the thing that's of interest to me in this regard is that I suppose, you know, we, we tend to think about these types of inequalities along a kind of one-dimensional lens. Mm. Um, but what's come out of my research, I suppose, is this profound sense in which actually gender and, and social class intersect in really important ways in terms of who gets to the top. So, for example, women from working-class backgrounds face this really clear double disadvantage in earnings in elite occupations. And significantly, this is higher than if you add the gender and the class pay gap together. It's about £19,000 less that you're going to be earning in an elite occupation if you're a woman from a working class background versus a man from a professional or managerial background. And so I think, you know, it's really important to sort of understand what's going on that means that women at that intersection face this particular pay penalty. And I think you get into really interesting territory then around why that is and how we tend to think about different types of class identities along gendered lines. So, for example, I'm finding, having just done a big project at the UK Civil Service, is that Both men and women from working class backgrounds are kind of equally underrepresented as a whole within the civil service, but men from working class backgrounds are more likely to reach top grades. And what I found in interviews is that this is probably really connected to the way in which different civil servants feel they can express their class identity in the workplace. Right. So not only are men more comfortable talking about their background at work there's often a sort of ease in displaying kind of you know markers of a working class background accent humor etc and actually in some cases this kind of display of one's origin is actually used by some men from working class backgrounds quite successfully as a kind of brand as a way of kind of showing themselves to be a different type of leader someone that kind of, I suppose, shakes up the kind of male, stale, pale brigade that you sort of associate with the top echelons of the civil service. And in contrast, what I found really strongly, and and I was really quite struck by this, was that almost every woman from a working-class background that I interviewed told me that they actively conceal their background at work and, you know, feel very much that to disclose their background Either explicitly or through sort of embodied markers would be to kind of open themselves up to this kind of negative judgment. Um, that there's this kind of latent class snobbery that women are particularly at peril at that is kind of underneath the surface and to reveal it would only then
0: sort of put your career at some sort of disadvantage. I think it's just incredibly, you know, complicated. I think that's, that's the answer that I'm sort of coming to with most of this. But if we think about moving forwards, do you think your answer to my opening question will be different in a decade or two or three's time?
3: I hope so. Yeah, I really do. And I mean that probably in, in terms of both men and women. You know, in the sense that I think, to me, thinking back to my own adolescence and perhaps the travails of trying to fit into a particular box of what uh, masculinity was valuable. I hope that for both men and women, those sort of what the acceptable boxes are that you can occupy become slightly less tight and slightly less restrictive. And I think that task is more urgent for women, but I wouldn't in any way underestimate how much pressure there is on young boys as well to occupy and perform a particular type of masculinity.
0: That was another pleasurable and purposeful episode for me and hopefully for you too. I enjoyed asking all my guests about whether it's better to be a boy or a girl. I'm personally committed to reducing inequalities in well-being over the lifetime, and that will become ever more clear in the next episode. So when looking at gender differences, it's important to note that on average, women live four years or so longer than men in the UK. That difference is a little less for richer people and a little more for poorer ones. These aren't far off the differences that exist by social class. So if we care about class differences in life expectancy... We ought to care about gender ones too. In terms of who has the better lives in addition to longer ones, well, there isn't really that much difference in overall happiness, as Kate and I discussed. These data matter, and they should inform our discussions of who is doing well and who is doing badly. They also inform my own answer to the question I asked all my guests, whether I would be better off being a girl or a boy. I think I agree with Kate that if I was to be born anywhere in the world, I would choose to be a boy. But if I knew I was going to be born in the UK, I don't think there's very much in it, to be honest. Having a slightly lower risk of dying at all ages might just swing it in favour of being a girl. And as someone who always feels warm, I would quite like the opportunity to put on more layers rather than reaching the point where I can't take any more off. But we must, of course, look deeper into lifetime wellbeing and also at the factors that serve to boost the life experiences of men and women and also at the barriers too. In listening back to the first five episodes, I realised just how much I say context matters. But it really does, and it matters here too. Whilst all narratives about how to live, including gender stereotypes, will always serve the interests of those in power, the groups they best serve will depend on the context. This means that we need to be much more nuanced in our discussions about where the most important challenges lie. Now, of course, there's massive differences within groups as well as between them, and these must not be overlooked or underestimated. But I do think that class matters most when it comes to money, and gender is the key issue when we talk about sex and about fertility. We need to have much more discussion of these issues rather than focusing so much on the labour market. Now, you don't have to agree with me on this, of course. But whatever your own views about these issues it reminds us all that we need to know something about the specific context of the discrimination to determine whose cause needs fighting for the strongest. Being alert to context in this way stops us getting into distracting and divisive debates about whether class or gender or race which we haven't discussed at all matters most. Each is important in its own right and each can be relatively more or less important in specific contexts. Being alert to context should also remind us that we're not in a world of zero-sum games. If women do better, men don't have to do worse. And men and women need each other. (laughs) Well, men need women more, but let's not revisit the misery of marriage again. Rather than think in terms of competition between the sexes, I would much rather us focus more attention on collaboration between them. Whether we're the duck or the rabbit, whether we see the duck or the rabbit, we are all animals after all. I'm Professor Paul Dolan. That was the That Rabbit podcast and it was a Mother Come Quickly production. This podcast forms part of the Shaping the Post-COVID World Initiative of the London School of Economics and Political Science. Next time, have we become more comfortable during COVID prioritising the lives of older people over the future of younger people?